stop the rollout of the vax? Is that something we should do? I didn't just say stop the rollout of the vax. I said it should never have been approved for a single human in the first place. There needs to be a moratorium. There needs to be, oh my God. Right. What have we done? Yeah. This is horrific. Yes. It is horrific. I'm sorry. People are dying. As horrific as it is, we have to face the truth. Because unless we face the truth, the root cause of this problem is going to, these problems are going to keep happening. People are going to keep dying. Right? The vaccine is having almost no benefit whatsoever now. It is um, just tragic, to put it politely, that you've got ministers and politicians in this country telling people to have boosters. I don't think they're deliberate. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. And it's going to harm people. And it's going to kill people. Let's be very honest here. Right? And I've never in my whole life... Um, I mean, we are living through a nightmare here, honestly. Welcome to another episode of The Discernible Interviews. Right now we have a consultant cardiologist touring Australia. It's a fascinating thing. There's things that are being said elsewhere, but not in Australia. For some reason, we need them to come into Australia to to say it for us. This is Dr. Asim Alhotra. He's come in here to say, hey, we need to stop the rollout of the vaccines. We need to pause, have a look at what's going on. Uh, In fact, it's a stunning story that we'll be getting into today, how he originally was promoting them, and now he's... Uh, expressing some level of regret. No, let's let's not do that. There's too many injuries. So today we're going to have a chat about. I think, Asim, a lot of people have asked you already why these, what these vaccines are, why they're bad, and so on. We can cover that briefly, but let's also go more deeply into uh, proper medicine. Why you're doing it? I'd love to test some of your ideas. Like what you know, people. There's been accusations that you're doing this for money. I'm like, well, you know, I want to get some of those motivations behind it. So thank you for coming all the way out into the <laughs> suburbs of Melbourne. Thanks. Great to be here, mate. Honestly, really good. So I've spent a couple of uh, nights with you this week seeing you present to, to a broad audience. Maybe we should start there. Can you sum up for the people who may not have seen your interview with Rogan and may not have gone to these nights? What is your like, key message? Why are you in Australia? What are you trying to achieve? Yeah, first and foremost, um, my primary responsibility and duty as a doctor is to improve my patient's health or patient outcomes. And to do that, there's a very nice framework that we use, and I always think about with every consultation with patients, it's called the evidence-based medicine triad. That is the uh, you know, analytical framework for teaching and practicing medicine. What does that mean? You use your clinical experience and knowledge, clinical intuition as well. That's very much part of uh, you know, evidence-based medicine practice, medical practice. Best available evidence on whatever we're you know, um, going to discuss whether it's a drug treatment, whether it's a surgical intervention, such as a heart stent, whether it's um, organizing a test. And the last but not least, what's crucial, what we are taught in medical school, we have to take into consideration individual patient preferences and values. That means informed consent, but that also means communicating information in a way that patients can understand mm-hmm. and talking about what's important to those patients, because it may vary from patient to patient about what they want, really, whether it's a lifestyle change, whether they want a pill, etc. So that's where I come from, Um, and really I've been somebody who has been very much at the forefront of advocating improving how we can be better doctors, but I always come back to the basics of uh, what we learn in medical school is that 80% of your diagnosis comes from the history, that means the conversation with the patient. If you know your stuff and you know how to ask the right questions and you'll listen to your patient, you will, in 80% of cases, you will have 
uh, what we call a differential diagnosis, mm. the possible causes, mm. but almost invariably, if you do it properly, you will get that diagnosis as the number one likely factor from that conversation. And then of course, they say um, that you know 5% of your diagnosis will come from the examination, 5% will come from simple tests, 5% will come from more expensive tests, and 5% will come, uh, you will not have a diagnosis, right? And often that means that one in 20, often in those situations, um, whatever the patient comes to you with, whatever symptoms, it will resolve itself with time, right? Nature does its course and yes. time is a healer, etc. Um, so that's where I come from. In terms of my personal motivations, I think that's important as well. Um, I was somebody that was brought up by two general practitioners. You know, I come from a, a family of doctors. Um, and maybe this is also cultural as well. Uh, it was ingrained in me as a child that the primary purpose of what I should be doing and how I should behave was always to be ethical, be polite and respectful to people. Um, but also your duty and responsibility primarily is to the community, right? And it's just, you know, I'm not, this is not judging people, but it's just the way I was brought up and where my parents were. They're probably the least materialistic people you can meet. So I never had in my mind that there was value placed on earning money, as in that was not a marker of success. Right. Obviously, you know, family of doctors, we've got enough, you yes, know, to get yes. by. There's no yes. doubt about that. But there was no extra value placed on having to earn money or in material goods. It was all about acting ethically, about relationships, all that kind of stuff. And of course, you know, my parents encouraged me to do medicine. So that's why I went down that route. That would uh, explain, sorry, that would explain a lot why you've been outspoken before the vaccine, but when it came to sugar and the fat hypothesis and so on. Okay, so that's your motivation. It's yeah. like a sense of duty to the community. Yeah, but also I'm an analytical person. You know, I'm somebody that even at school was described as being a critical thinker. You know, um, I wrote for the school newspaper. I was always thinking outside the box. Um, so that is also part of who I am. And my father, led by example, gave me the courage to be able to speak out against injustice. Um, he always said, always stand up to bullies. You know, so I had all of this also within me. Uh, maybe some of it as well. I was very active as a sports person. I was very interested in personal health, mental and physical health. I was a foodie. I learned to cook. From, my father taught me to cook. Um, but also in that process, I think that gave me also that kind of fighting spirit. I captained sports teams at school and university. I played cricket. I had to decide between cricket and medicine at one stage. I was an opening bat, you know, so I'm used to facing, uh, you know, bouncers and, and fast bowling and that kind of stuff. So mm. I think all of these things probably shaped me to some degree of, you know, to the person I am today. But as, as I come back to me being someone who's interested in, in maths and science, um, uh, I always was somebody that was interested in the root cause of things. Um, I'm somebody that probably I would consider myself to be probably very high on the empath scale. Mm. What that means is for me on a personal level, I'm very sensitive to suffering around me. It's not necessarily a good thing, right? But I'm very sensitive to suffering around me. And I saw over my two decades as a doctor, increasingly more and more of my patients coming in who I didn't feel were getting better mentally or physically. More, more chronic disease, more pills. So in that process, certainly by the end of the sort of early, two, by say 2009, 2010, I had started then to look into understanding really why we had not, as a cardiologist, why we had not made massive inroads, inroads into curbing heart disease, right? It was still the biggest you know, cause of premature death in European men, mm. biggest, one of the biggest killers in the Western world. And I'm interested in coronary artery disease as a cardiologist specifically. I started my career in what we call intervention, which is keyhole heart surgery. That's what I did early on. That's what I trained in. That's what I qualified in. 
And I thought, you know what, I need to try and get into the roots of this. So then I went down my own, you know, journey, mm. looking at the root causes of heart disease. That's where I, my, my scientific academic background comes from. And realized um, very quickly that a lot of the information doctors were utilizing to make decisions for patients about drug prescriptions, etc., had been massively influenced by very powerful commercial entities. Initially starting with flawed science, you know, this is another point that's important to make, um, which many people don't really fully appreciate. So one is medicine is not an exact science, it never has been. It's an applied science. It's a science of human beings, it's constantly evolving. It's constantly evolving to such a great degree that we are taught in medical school, 50% of what you learn will turn out to be either outdated or dead wrong. Within five years of your graduation, the trouble is nobody can tell you which half. Mm. So you have to learn to learn on your own. Mm. Uh, and, what, and why that's important is a lot of the original hypotheses around heart disease and the root causes of it, you go back to the sort of 70s and 80s, was, you know, the, the main, for many cardiologists still, they believe that the main primary driver of heart disease is high cholesterol, and yes. that the lower the cholesterol, the better. Yes. And what happened as a result of that flawed thinking, there's a nuance here, I'm not, not, not going to completely discount it, is that these big industries developed around that hypothesis, this yes. fear of cholesterol, yes. including the food industry and all the low-fat foods and the yeah. high-carb, refined yeah. carbohydrate diets that went with it. That's where I got involved in the sugar campaign. Mm. But also the cholesterol-lowering industry is very, very lucrative. So, you know, statin Stem. drugs are mm. estimated to be a three trillion, uh, a trillion dollar industry. So that's the biggest uh, winner for uh, pharma would be statins, the number one drug. Absolutely. Certainly prior to the COVID vaccines, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was very heavily involved. 2013, I started writing articles for the BMJ to try and expose this um, misleading misinformation and then trying to shift the paradigm and the understanding saying, I think there's been an over-obsession with cholesterol lowering. In fact, there's something else which is more important. It's called insulin resistance. And the evidence up to date certainly suggests that's definitely way more important than cholesterol and probably the most significant factor that we know of at the moment. But the key here is insulin resistance in very brief terms is essentially linked to excess body fat mm. and um, diets that are high in refined carbohydrates um, and is probably the biggest, you know, biological driver of heart disease, right? More than anything else. And there's lots of evidence for that. But it wasn't being addressed. And one of the reasons it wasn't being addressed is because there was no effective drug treatment for it. Or diet and exercise lifestyle. Well, which is not well exactly. Yeah. And the way to combat insulin resistance within weeks, and this is when I find this out, I thought, oh my God, this is something that really needs to, everybody needs to know about because yeah. we can impact on people's lives very quickly. Mm. Just within a few weeks, you can reverse or massively improve those risk factors associated with insulin resistance purely from dietary changes mm. alone. So 80% of heart disease is thought to be environment and lifestyle. Right? And what does that mean? It means poor diet, it means being sedentary, it means psychosocial stress, mm. which some of it is in, within our control to, to a significant degree, but a lot of it is all to do with the way we, you know, to do, you know, with the way we live, work and relationship stress, all that kind of stuff. So that's really where I'm trying to shift. I'm still there. I'm still trying to shift that, that understanding. Okay, so before we go to vaccines, uh, if you think of the pioneers, the medical pioneers throughout history, Samuel Weiss and so on, or in science as well, Galileo, these people who, you know, there's that quote, uh, there's no point being a pioneer because all you get is an ass full of arrows. You're better to be the second or the third or the fourth, right? <laughs> so what you're doing is pioneering and you are getting an ass full of arrows. You've got people accusing you of various things. But over time, these people are proven, if they're correct, they're proven correct. Oh, Semmelweis was right about washing your hands and so on, right? But why is it that things persist, like we've been talking about um, 
the the heart, the coronary stuff, the the statins. That if it's true that they're pretty useless in, in some con in many contexts, why does it still persist today? And how can the truth not win out in the end? So I think um, this is probably multifactorial. Uh, I think one of the reasons these flawed hypotheses exist is because when they are promulgated, they, uh, there is never, well, and there should be, and good science, there should always be uncertainty attached to right. evidence. And, and that isn't part of the conversation that routinely happens with doctors and patients. It should. We're actually, we, if you look at the literature on evidence, ethical, evidence-based medical practice and medical shared decision-making, you always need to discuss uncertainties. So first of all, what is really tainted with an element of uncertainty mm. is promulgated as a gospel truth. Yes. And then you get indoctrination. And the indoctrination becomes so deep that even educated people think they're being objective. And this has always been the way, right? It, it has, unfortunately. It keeps repeating condition. itself. Even yes. though you know, we overturn old hypotheses, people have short memories, mm. and uh, this, the, the cycle continues. Because it feels to me like a saturated fat demonization is going on particularly long. And you know, with the vaccines, it feels particularly religious to me, the way that when dogmatically holding to... You've just described a medicine that's consultative, that is patient-focused, but is there not a shift towards a centralized, top-down approach in medicine, especially throughout COVID? Yeah, I think certainly throughout COVID we've seen that. But prior to COVID, I was very... So I also believe in... Um, you know, I'm a, a public health advocate, but I also believe in the importance of private advocacy, speaking to those influential figures, policymakers, for example. Yeah. And in 2015, um, I... Uh, uh, published a paper as lead author in the British Medical Journal called Choosing Wisely, the Academy, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges campaign to wind back the harm of too much medicine. So this was, I essentially coordinated a campaign between the BMJ and the mm. Medical Royal Colleges with all the Royal College presidents who, were, who sat around a table and we discussed this at meetings and I was working with them as an ambassador for them. And I, it didn't take long to convince them with the evidence that they should get behind a campaign around the fact that we've got a massive problem with an over-medicated population, mm. both in the UK and globally, and it was an important public health issue. So, uh, and in that process, one of the things that was uh, promoted was actually what I'm talking about, like shared decision-making, patient preferences and values, what, mm. how every patient is different rather than it being so centralized. But that hasn't translated through, unfortunately, no. so far into policy. No, and, uh, it's gone the other way. Yeah, yeah, it's gone the other way. And I think the reason it's gone the other way, and I've said this before, is when patients are fully informed, they tend to choose less treatments. Yeah, they take less drugs obviously. and less surgeries. Mm. But of course, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's completely yes. uh, at odds with mm. the interests of the drug industry. And with right? government, frankly. They seem... Yeah, but the, but for, yeah, with government. But I think what's going on here is that the people who are really pulling the strings of the government you know, you call it state capture. It's, it's, it's state capture of the corporate. The corporates have captured oh, right, the state. Yeah. It's money. Yeah. And interestingly, some ideologues are trying to say this is communism, which is interesting. Yeah. Because I think that um, certainly people on the right, and we're all guilty of this, I think it's quite difficult for some people to accept that actually the, the way we have got here has actually happened because of this sort of, you know, left, right of centre, yeah. neoliberal economic policies right. where they think... Right. It's the market is the solution. Mm. Capitalism is the solution. 
on the basis that it's about the free market. Mm, right? It's not a free market, though. But it's not exactly. It's not a free market. I've mm. dis- I've come up with this a more accurate definition. I think saying we don't have a free market. We haven't had a free market probably maybe ever. Mm. It's always been a freedom to deceive market. Oh, haven't that, heard this. That fuels the businesses of selling lies. Oh. And in evidence-based medicine, if you are doing something that isn't complete in terms of making decisions on the complete information, yes. what you will do, and I can think about this even about everything we do in terms of our health behavior, if you're making decisions on incomplete information, at best, it's not going to give you the best outcome that you want, and yes. at worst, it's going to do you harm. Yes. So actually, you can actually rationalize even mathem- from a mathematical perspective um, how we have got to this situation. And well, that's what I've been trying to do in my advocacy work. Okay, just on that, can you give me a quick summary of the, the stunning statement you made that you think pharmaceuticals are a net harm to the human population? Yeah, so... That's, that's crazy. Yeah, so of course, you know, we in many ways rely and like the fact that we, over several decades in medicine, we produce many life-saving drugs and treatments, most of them acute treatments rather mm. than chronic. That's, mm. a, that's another issue. Um, but I looked at what is the evidence on the effect of the drug industry in the last few decades. And if you look at information from America and from Canada and from France, essentially, the, over the last couple of decades, more than half, in many cases, of new drugs are essentially copies of old ones. Yes. Right? They drug, change a few things. Dr- yeah, drug companies take an old drug, a generic yeah. drug, off patent. They yeah. change a few molecules here and there. They change the name. They make it look like it's a different drug. Yeah. They get it approved. They get it marketed. We pay for it as a taxpayer. They make lots of money. They move on to the next one when someone's worked out it's no better than the old drug. And the cycle keeps continuing. Yeah. And actually, when you look at innovation, certainly what's come from the drug industry, it's been very, very poor in the last few decades. You know, only maximum maybe 10% of new drugs are thought to have an additional clinical benefit over previous drugs. Wow. So you see this whole huge waste in the system paid yes. for by the taxpayer. Drug companies make lots of money and then they don't pay their taxes and therefore there's no money for government to... So, you know, this, it, it's, it's a mess, mm. right? Mm. So we've got these very big, powerful corporations. Listen, I'm all for people wanting to make money. That's fine, right? Mm. Mm. By doing the right thing. <laughs> not by making money doing the wrong thing. Not by lying to people. And this is what we've got. We've got a system that unfortunately, um, you know, uh, a system that... Unfortunately, um, many big, powerful corporations make money from lying. They then don't, you know, pay their taxes. They, 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 as a result of selling their products, whether it's food products or whether it's drugs, you know, they have what we call externalities that happen, so mm. the harms. Mm, mm. And then we have to pick up the pieces. The government yes. picks up the pieces. Yeah, yeah. So the whole system is corrupted. I've said, you know, in a way, what we've got is a system that steals from the poor and gives to the rich. Yes, yes, it seems to be there. Okay, so 10% are considered novel. <laughs> yeah. But then balanced against... Well, huge waste. Huge waste. And then, of course, there was one interesting bit of data um, from France that looked at about 1,000 drugs were approved between 2000 and 2011. Yeah. And more than 50% were found to be copies of old ones. 15% of the drugs were found to have net harm, more harmful than beneficial. 15. And only 8% were found to be beneficial. So more than double the amount of drugs that were approved were harmful than beneficial. And for me, that's a very clear no-brainer. The overall net effect of the pharmaceutical industry on society, even if you take the waste into consideration, is negative one on society. That's a huge statement for a highly published and qualified medical professional to make. Is yeah. that a, are you at odds with most, nearly all of the profession in saying something like that? No, no one's actually rebutted that yet. I'm, I'm looking, listen, I'm all for debate and discussion. I've made this statement across, um, in many uh, yeah. lectures around the world. I even published on this yes. and highlighted that. Yeah. And uh, I've not had a single rebuttal to that statement from anyone. 
So it's just being ignored. So, so Wait, listen, those are the facts. Now, they yeah. can interpret it in different ways and say, well, you know, uh, maybe, I don't know. I can't see any counter-argument, to be honest. I can't, I'm, I'm very happy for you to give me a counter-argument. I can't see a counter-argument to that. Well, I don't know if I have a counter-argument, but I, can I try and simplify it for the layman watching? Is that, am I correcting you? What you're saying is, if we didn't have the pharmaceutical industry at all, the net effect on a, on a population level might be better off. I think so. Yeah, I mean, potentially, yes, absolutely. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that black and white, though. I think what we need to do is we need to create a system that actually encourages innovation in medicine that is more likely to produce many more therapeutically important drugs. So, for example, one of the big issues we've had in the last 10, 15 years is the uh, multi-drug resistant, you know, um, antibiotics, mm. right? Mm. Uh, and um, one of the reasons why that isn't being combated is that development of antibiotics is not very lucrative. If oh, you have an infection, right. take an antibiotic for five days or whatever, yes, yes. right, it's done. Yes. The model of the drug industry, ideally, what they want yes. because of the system, yep. which is pathological, yep. is to get as many people on as many drugs uh, for as long as possible. So I debated yes. the CEO of the AstraZeneca, the Cambridge University Union, 2018. Yep. I was asked to go there by the BMJ, yes. you know, to be part of an opposition panel to them. And the, the motion was we need more new drugs. But in effect, what they were saying is we, know we need more people to take as many drugs as, for as mm. long as possible. Mm. Um, and it makes sense from a business perspective. I mean, if they could convince the world that we need to get babies on statins and they take them for the rest of their lives. They would love that. Of course they would. That would be very profitable. But there are some very high-level people who have bought into that. There's this guy in uh, Harvard, you know, that Australian um, researcher over there? He does uh, anti-aging stuff over there. Anyway, he was on Rogan saying that he's taking, he has no indicators for statins, but he took it just because he thinks it might be a good thing to do long-term. Uh, statins are pushed on everyone. My wife is young and healthy and no issues. Calcium score is great. And she said, oh, take a statin just because you've got a family history. So they're just putting them, everyone on statins all yeah. the time. And what they do is they indoctrinate the doctors. So most doctors, again, as I point out in my talks, there's a big problem of health and statistical illiteracy amongst the medical profession. People need to understand that. They don't research, do they, the doctors? They get their well, propaganda. It, well, yeah, they do. And I think what happens is they take as gospel truth what they're getting from guideline boards that are often heavily conflicted in terms of drug industry, but also in terms of their own... Um, dogmatic beliefs on particular hypotheses. Yeah. So they are considered experts when in fact they are often not being complete with the totality of the evidence. So for example, I'll give you another example. Yes. It's accepted in cardiology circles amongst many people in the medical profession that the lower, you, the lower your cholesterol, the better. Yes. If you've got whatever your cholesterol is, what, you take a drug or diet or whatever. I mean, diet doesn't have much of an impact, but drugs are quite profound. You, you, and this is what we were you know, almost um, indoctrinated with yeah. in cardiology when I was going through my training and there was something uh, basically that, you know, I remember actually I'd come out um, in 2013, just give you an example, there's a little story here, which is interesting. 2013, I published this article in the BMJ called Saturated Fat is Not a Major Issue. Mm. October the 23rd, 2013, became a big global news story. Mm. Front page of three British newspapers, um, you know, CNN International, etc. And that day I was asked to go in the evening onto CNN International and to debate with a professor from Imperial College, who was going to counter what I was saying. 
that's fine. Let's have a discussion and yes. a scientific debate. And what I'd said essentially, as well as saturated fat not being really clearly implicated in my view in heart disease, that it was all you know flawed information. Um, I said that there was an over obsession with cholesterol, mm. and we've over medicated millions of people on statins who, if fully informed, wouldn't take the drug, right? And um, you know, I remember this chap in the green room before we went on. He was so angry. <laughs> Right? I remember he almost was like red in the face and frothing in the mouth. And I remember it was almost felt like I was being pushed up against the wall. Imagine. Mm. And I'm still a junior doctor mm. at this point. Mm. And he says, I can't believe what you've done. I'm so angry with you. Imagine. But I've never met this guy. Mm. I'm about to go. He's a senior mm. you know, clinician in, in, in a hospital in London. And um, he just kept repeating almost like, in a, like a religious mantra. Like we're doing the vaccines right now. Yeah, yeah. He said, for every one millimole lowering of LDL cholesterol, so-called yeah. bad cholesterol, yeah. there's a 20% risk reduction in cardiovascular events. Yeah. For every one million, he kept repeating it, almost like a religious chant. Yes. And um, I just said to him, listen, I said, there's a big issue here. There's over-medication, all this stuff is published in the BMJ, it's peer-reviewed, and he kind of calmed down. Then we went, and he was very polite to me in the debate. And it's interesting, just before I go back into this, when we left the studio, he was very polite, and he says, you know what, we should publish together. Wow. Well, the thing is, academics want to be published, right? So they saw me as someone who's getting all this attention through the BMJ and they want to also be yeah, there. Just, yeah. I'm not motivated by that. I'm motivated yeah. by getting the truth out there. I'm not motivated for the sake of getting published. But a lot yeah. of academics get yeah. their power and prestige from that. Yes. So you've got to understand that as well. Yeah. But moving on, so we decided, me and two other cardiologists decided that we were going to look at this data in its totality and go through a medical journal and publish what we call a systematic review in the, in the journal BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. This is 2019. And what we did is we took all drug trials involving lowering LDL cholesterol, looking at high-risk groups of heart disease and low-risk groups. And was this true? Is there a clear correlation in drug trials where it's very powerful lowering of LDL and total cholesterol? Was there a correlation, a clear correlation and link mm. between lowering cholesterol, LDL cholesterol and heart disease? And we found there was no clear link. So when you look at all the evidence in its totality, there isn't there. So what people are using is cherry-picked, financially driven, profit-making um, research <clears throat> that gives you this clear line that people take, uh, many doctors take as a gospel truth or science and it's not. So it's inconsistent at best, and I would say it's um, incorrect at worst. And therefore, for me, I, my primary, when I manage people with heart disease, I never prioritize at all lowering cholesterol for the sake of lowering cholesterol, well, not with any patient. I'm okay. there to improve and reduce their risk of heart disease. And we can use lots of different factors for that. And people, many patients come to me for consultations on this issue and they're shocked. When I, and I break it down for them. I try and break the numbers down. So a lot of people get this exaggerated fear. They come to me saying, oh my God, my cholesterol's a bit high. My doctor says I go in a statin. If I don't take a statin, I'm going to die. And they yes. are really under fear. And I'm like, yes. well, hold on. Part of our job as doctors is to reassure people. Give them accurate information, right? When I break down the, often, you know, I say, what do you think your risk of a heart attack or stroke is in the next 10 years? If I was to ask you, what have you been led to believe? I said, what would worry you? I said, oh, 50, 60, 70%. Whoa. And then I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to, with all your risk factors, in the most scientific way we've, possible that we can, I'm going to yes. give you a, a good estimate of what your risk is. And I use a risk calculator, which is well validated. And I come back to them often and I'll say, it's about 8%. And they're like, you see, they're really, 8% yes. only? Yes. Oh. And then I say, well, if you're in this category, let's talk about statins. Yeah. You have no mortality benefit taking a statin over five years. It's not going to prolong your life. And it'll give you about a 1% chance. There's all evidence-based. This is drug industry-sponsored research, by the way, which is likely still an exaggeration. I say, if you don't get a side effect and you take this pill religiously for five years, there's a 1% chance it will prevent you having a non-fatal heart attack or stroke. Would you like to take a statin? 
And they say, doctor, be honest, mm, don't think so. Well, I'm here to, whatever, that's fine. I support your decision in keeping with the principles of ethical evidence-based medical practice. And I put that in all my letters. I've been doing this for years and I've had no negative feedback from it whatsoever. But everyone watching, at least in this country, I grew up in a medical family, I know what it's like. I went to Hamilton, I went to the Witch Sundays thanks to drug companies as a kid. I went on helicopter rides because of drug companies thanks to a kid. Everyone knows that when you go to the doctor, they, they believe it. It, it. It's not like the doctors are in bed with Big Pharma. No, no, no. no. They are also uh, indoctrinated. ignorant, indoctrinated. indoctrinated. Yes. They really believe they're doing the of right thing. Of course they do. And I absolutely, genuinely, I'm not here to criticize the medical profession. I think we can do a lot better. And the overwhelming majority of doctors and nurses I know and work with are brilliant people, caring people. Mm. But I think they have been maybe too trusting yes. of the information that they're getting from medical journals, which we, and I was there, I understand it, taking as gospel truth. When actually we know now that it's very heavily influenced and distorted by the drug industry. Well, I mean, I remember coming back from big pharma holidays and the, my parents were like, wow, this Lipitor thing does great results. We should prescribe more of that. You know, that was, that's how it's done. So let's move to the vaccines then. Because the, what, you're one of the only, as I said in the beginning, we, we need outside voices to come in and, and bell the cat, as it were. Because everyone here is just not speaking up. They're all folding... I was going to play this to you at one of the events. Daniel Andrews is our premier in Victoria. And he came out only about a week ago now saying your best protection against COVID-19 is getting your fifth booster or he used the word fifth. Uh, so go and get vaccinated today. What is going on where this we, we're ending up with this? People like you standing up and saying literally stop the vaccine rollout. And then we're having other people saying get your fifth. It's getting poles apart. Where are we going in, in terms of the medical community? Yeah, I don't think it's getting... I mean, the, the arguments may be poles apart, but actually the shift, certainly we're seeing in the UK and America, and I think it's going to start happening here soon, is that more people are actually getting closer to understanding a greater truth and getting more information. And what that means is, at the very least, certainly, we should never have mandated these vaccines, right? Because we know it doesn't stop transmission it doesn't stop infection that's that's irrefutable no one will argue with that now which is which is interesting why uh, why dan andrews is maybe living in a different place maybe he's not quite up to date with the evidence certainly the other thing i would say as well i met a very i won't name this person yet because i want to protect their um mm. you know identity until they're willing to come out but i met a very senior member of the british government a few weeks ago mm. somebody who was involved during the lockdowns etc and this person said to me quite explicitly that the, and they realized that now and didn't realize it at the time, the only beneficiaries of vaccine mandates were Big Pharma. Yeah, duh. That's a big statement. Yeah. This is someone close to Boris Johnson. How could they not say that at the time? And I'm gonna They ask didn't you. know, they didn't know. So when, so they, this person also said to me, and I had this conversation and I, I honestly genuinely believe in um, that most people want to do the right thing and they, and they want the truth and even policymakers and, you know, dare I say it, politicians. Mm. This person said to me, I've understand, understood now more than ever that the information that we get to make decisions on policy is heavily filtered. And I said, mm. what do you mean? Is it, is it being influenced by p powerful commercial interests? And they said, absolutely. So let's turn to you and explain why you originally um, recommended people get the vaccine. You've told a story of a friend who you told to get a vaccine, right? Yeah. And now you've gone the other side. What happened there? Was it just that your your father died and you thought the vaccine caused that? Like, no, what caused you to turn around? No, no. So I, I was. So my father died is only part of the story. 
in, and I'll come on to that in a minute, about me understanding a specific mechanism of harm from the vaccine. Because my father's death was a very specific type of death, mm. right? And as a cardiologist, I was interested in that, but I'll come on to that in a second. Um, for me, I had placed vaccines in a very special, untouchable category. Part of it may also be because I'm a cardiologist. Um, a lot of what drives my advocacy is my own experience with patients, right? And being sensitive to every single patient and trying to understand what's driven them to the consultation room, what's, why, why are they suffering so much, what's the root cause of it. So one, I've never seen a vaccine injury in my life. Two, I've had many vaccines. I've got, still got a scar on my left arm from a smallpox vaccine you know, uh, which I had as a child. And I, I was born in India. I was a year old before we moved to the UK. Mm. So I've been very much someone who has been a proponent of the benefits of traditional vaccines. I think when you look at all of the different pharmacological interventions in the history of medicine, traditional vaccines are still the safest by far. I'm very, I'm willing to someone to say that. Still now, uh, yeah. So protein-based, recombinant type protein. Absolutely. Um, you so know, you, and, and the World Health Organization, certainly <laughs> people don't trust them, but anymore, a lot of people don't trust them for, for good reason because of commercial capture. But Certainly the data I've seen, which I think is pretty reliable, is that if you look at vaccines across the world, especially in developing countries, they're responsible for saving about four to five, prior to COVID, four to five million lives a year. So your problem is with the new novel mRNA. And so, well, so, so with my mindset, I did not perceive or think of a vaccine causing any problem. And also none of the key kind of players, I think there's something else is in this, because I, I always look at, I, I think outside the box, but I always go to other people, I get verification of what I might think. I go to experts in specific fields, mm. immunologists, for example, you know, uh, vaccine specialists, etc., And I couldn't see anyone, certainly that I would regard to be a very high scientific integrity. And certainly I hadn't seen it. I think they were probably out there that was questioning these vaccines at the beginning, right? So I couldn't see any real evidence. There was a few blogs and there was stuff going on social media, but nothing for me that, that made me think, oh, I, there's nothing here that <coughs> concerns me. So I placed them in a special category and therefore I had two doses of the vaccine. And in the UK, we only at the beginning, things changed later on and then I acted on it. We were only offering the vaccine to people at high risk or yes, vulnerable. Yes. So I was very early on, I had it. And then February, 2021, I went in Good Morning Britain because I was asked to tackle vaccine hesitancy amongst people of ethnic minority backgrounds, BAME mm. groups, they call them. Mm. Because they, they traditionally are the ones that have least trust in government yes. because they're the most marginalized yes. people in society. You understand why yes. that would be. Yes. And I just said, listen, I understand their concerns. Look at pharma fraud over the last several decades. Mm. But I also said traditional vaccines are amongst the safest, right? And I left it at that. That's yeah. what I did. But then things changed. Um, my dad had a cardiac arrest unexpectedly. His post-mortem findings didn't make sense to me at the time. He had two severe narrowings of three of his major arteries. So I didn't, it, didn't, it didn't click then. In fact, not only did it not click, I remember when he had his cardiac arrest and I tweeted it out. I remember quite vividly getting very, very angry because someone who I considered a troll, I can't remember who it was, basically said it's a vax and that made you angry oh i thought what i thought how can how dare you how dare you that's what i thought mm. this is the you know i thought nutter mm. i thought anti-vax nutter honestly mm. actually i'm being polite in terms of the language I, I was thinking other thoughts in my head and i blocked them that was and it was several months later because the thing is, I was always baffled by what happened to my dad's in, in terms of his, uh, his uh, post-mortem findings. I'm somebody that has been, you know, heavily involved in shifting the understanding of heart disease. Yes. How it develops, how it progresses. So this is my area of mm. research interest. I know this very, very, in a lot of depth. Mm. And something had happened, clearly, knowing my dad's cardiac history, to cause a rapid increase in narrowings of his coronary arteries. 
And I couldn't identify what it was. And then research came out, which was the first time I thought, ah, this is probably what's going on here. And this was a publication in circulation in um, November 2021. And it basically showed the mechanism of harm of how the mRNA vaccines, within weeks of having it in people that were being followed up with um, blood tests, looking at their risk of a heart attack over five years, there was a jump from 11% baseline to 25% within two months of the mRNA vaccines. That's an that's a unbelievable increase for people it's huge. to understand. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. And, even, and it's one bit of data and you say, okay, it could be flawed, whatever yeah. else. But even if it's partially true, it's still bad. And it shows then that what's happening is the mRNA vaccines, whatever mechanism, are causing in, in many people huge surges in coronary inflammation. And what that would do is if anyone, and I know this, if anyone has even some mild furring that may not cause them a problem, because heart disease develops in, te- I mean, it even starts in teenagers, mm. right? A bit of buildup of fatty streaks. And, mm. But most heart attacks don't happen in general till after the age of 60. Right. Okay. But what's happening here is, is that the likely mechanism is for many people, and I've now actually got case studies and patients who have got exactly the same thing, where you've got very clear evidence yes. that the only thing that's accelerated their heart disease is the vaccine, when you exclude everything. Because that comes back to something else, um, is that, uh, you know, there's an interesting story here. I went to Edinburgh Medical School, and one of its famous alumni was Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes was modelled, the character of Sherlock Holmes was modelled on one of the professors of medicine at Edinburgh. Oh, cool. That... Arthur Conan Doyle was, you know, fascinated by, thought this guy was the most amazing diagnostician. If anyone sees Dr. House, it's kind of similar, right? So this guy, and this is how we learn, you know, in in medicine, uh, in medical school, we learn to make diagnosis often to even start to form a diagnosis before the patients even open their mouth. Mm. What are they wearing? Mm. What's the, you know, look at their hands, Mm. you know, what kind of job could they be doing? And what Mm. are the diseases that are more prevalent with those sorts of jobs, whatever. Mm. And the byline that Sherlock Holmes used to solve his mysteries, right, as a detective, is actually very similar, the mindset of how we make diagnosis. Mm. So it was when you've eliminated the impossible, yes. whatever remains, yes. however improbable, yes. must be the truth. Wow, yes, deduction. And that's my thinking as well, right? And, uh, and this comes on to the whole vaccine issue, like the indoctrination here, because I had not even accepted as part of the possibility that vaccines can be causing all these different issues, I was always going to miss it. But soon as I realized there were, you know, there was data out there showing signals of increases of all these conditions and the biological mechanism of harm of the vaccine through inflammation, it was very easy then to then start making the link and put the, put the jigsaw together. And in, in medicine, when you look at evidence-based medicine, you also look at different types of evidence. And it's never one bit of, da- one bit of data, by the way, right? So yes, anecdote on its own is not enough. Although to be honest, every diagnosis that we make as doctors with every patient is an anecdote, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, everything, your um, hypothesis and your, uh, you, everything starts in a way in, med- in medical science, to be honest, almost everything starts with an anecdote mm. anyway, mm. but you build on that. Mm. So you have the uh, information now when you put it together on the vaccine harms, you have something called double-blinded randomized control trial evidence, which is reanalysis of Pfizer and Moderna's own trial published in the journal of vaccine showed more harm than good from the beginning yeah, and so they, that, they knew all along is what you're saying well yeah i mean i think they likely knew all along i mean there could have been willful blindness even amongst those scientists but the, data was there Pfizer. Yeah. But the, da- the data was there if someone yeah. looked at it properly yeah it was there to show more harm than good from the beginning which means it should never have been approved right so, for, uh, for a single human never the, been approved for a single human that's my personal view 
And I think I make a strong case for that. Well, given what we know now, especially the rate of serious adverse event rate is at least one in 800 from that evidence yeah. at two months. That's way too high for any vaccine to be approved. Mm. We've pulled other vaccines for much less harm, mm. right? Um, you've got what we call high quality observational data. The best study I think was done in published in Nature Scientific Reports in Israel, where they found there was a 25% increase. And this is extraordinary. Look at the number uh, the, uh, the age groups here. 25% increase in cardiac arrests or heart attacks in people aged between 16 and 39. Oh. Associated with a vaccine, not associated with COVID. Oh, right? Okay. Very good paper. I've again spoke to one of the researchers in that Retsev Levy. He's done great work just to clarify all of the details on that. And in fact, there was a signal in every age group. Right. Yeah. But the highest one was between 16 and 39. It's very young. Unbelievable. Um, you've got autopsy data showing where people, even several months after having the vaccine, they've found um, spike protein, which is, you know, clearly with, from the vaccine in the coronary arteries and in the myocardium. People having sudden cardiac death several months after having the vaccine. Mm -hmm. You've got clinical data, my own clinical experience and of other, other doctors, where you make a diagnosis, you come to a conclusion looking at all the possible causes of what could be going on. And clearly the clear, likely top of the differential diagnosis of these patients' symptoms of the vaccine. You've got plausible biological mechanism, which we talked about, that was published in Journal Cell, showing that the spike protein likely gets distributed throughout the body for several months and it goes to the brain, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, the ovaries and testes, and can either cause a direct toxic effect to those tissues or onto immune reaction, okay? Um, and you've got pharmacovigilance data, mm. unprecedented. Mm. The yellow card reports, what mm. people are reporting. Is, and, yeah. and I look back and say, what, what are the standards of interpreting this data before the COVID pandemic? It's changed. Well, historically, yes. there is an under-reporting rate for serious adverse events of at least uh, tenfold. Okay. And that's established. Even, what, even in America, in fact, one bit of data says that only 1% of the true serious adverse event rates are reported. But the reports we've got already is unprecedented. Yes. So, I mean, mate, it's a no-brainer. It's not even... In normal circumstances, we wouldn't even be debating this now. This, these, these mRNA vaccines would have been pulled a long time ago. Why are we debating this now? So what I don't understand if because you people like you are jumping up and saying it's so clear and it's yeah. so compelling the data yeah. and yet the whole world is just saying oh, oh well because acknowledging what's happened is truly horrific and it's emotionally traumatic for most people and it's easier to bury your head in the sand it's called willful blindness that's the main reason but that is not for me not good enough we have to be able to stand up and as horrific as it is we have to face the truth yeah. because unless we face the truth the root cause of this problem is gonna these problems are gonna keep happening. People are going to keep dying, right? The vaccine is having almost no benefit whatsoever now. It is um, just tragic, to put it politely, that you've got ministers and politicians in this country telling people to have boosters. I don't think they're deliberate. They're, they don't know what they're doing. And it's going to harm people. And it's going to kill people. Let's be very honest here, right? And I've never in my whole life, um, I mean, we are living through a nightmare here, honestly. But for me, my duty is I, whatever arrows come my way, I cannot sleep at night. I've put my reputation on the line. I've put my medical license on the line. But for me, this is more important than anything else. So how do you, I'm still stunned that you were alert to the commercial corruption of Big Pharma for a long time. And then still, you weren't aware of it when it came to this, you know, when the, the you were pushing the vaccine. Well, mate, right? I'm not against all drugs, you see. It would have been, you know, if throwing the baby out of the bathwater saying everything is corrupt and everything. I didn't have any, uh, and nobody I knew who I respected 
was saying that they had any concerns about it either, right? Even the BMJ, this is an important point, right? The BMJ has been at the forefront of highlighting all the corruption of big pharma. It has. More yes. than anyone. BMJ has been the top, absolutely. They are pro-vaccine. They're still yes. pro-vaccine. Yes. yes, Okay. How do you, how do you, well, how does that make sense? Well, let me keep extrapolating then. Now that you're, you're, you're calling out the corruption and the harms caused by these vaccine and big pharma, and even your upcoming documentary, First Do No Farm. Yes. Which is that the website? First Do No Farm. Yeah, um, nofarmfilm.com. So people, we're trying to crowdfund and get as much support to get people behind this to highlight all these structural failures, but also with solutions. Yeah. So the link to that will be in the, in the description of all these posts. Uh, but I have to ask you now about traditional vaccines, which you've just said um, you're a big fan of. <laughs> How is it possible that the corruption here is so rampant with the mRNA for, for the same company? but it's not there for the traditional protein vaccine. Well, I think one of the reasons you could argue is that this was actually rushed. I didn't know this, I'll be honest, because I'm not, you know, I had to learn a lot about vaccines, which I never knew mm. before, right? That isn't, you know, I'm, I'm a cardiologist. I've never given a vaccine to anybody. Mm. Even though I helped out in a vaccine center, I was kind of helping out with all this. I never delivered a vac single vaccine to anybody. Mm. You know, my parents did that. They were GPs, right, in their, in their old days. My dad obviously was, was retired by the time the vaccine roller came, so he didn't deliver any of these vaccines to anybody. But I know lots of doctors that did. Um, so that's one reason. The other thing is what well, I didn't know, you know, uh, and it's, uh, most doctors probably don't know this anyway, is that these traditional vaccines normally take five to ten years to develop and mm. go through safety checks i was not aware of that but my, my question is where a focus is where you focus your attention so this one took was rolled up very quickly so yes, that's part of, of part of the of reason why there was a mistake made and part of the reason why there those safety traditional safety checks weren't implemented but we can't just say that was a mistake for that that one vaccine but we'll go back to they'll be they'll be sweet from here on pharma will be trustworthy from here on when it comes to vaccines I'm one of these people who, like you, grew up being vaxxed with everything vaxxed my are you, kids. Are you asking the question about whether I've got concerns about other vaccines now? Well, I'm, I am, but I'm also <laughs> expressing my concerns because I've got young kids who I've been vaxxing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've always been pro-vaxxing. Yeah. And now I'm like, well, if they lied about this, and heaps of people watching are feeling this, if they lied about this, did they lie about the, you know, the whole autism, which I thought were crazy anti-vaxxers, vaccines cause autism. But now I'm having to go, well, has someone legitimately looked at that data properly? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Um, I tend to only talk about things I know about in depth, Okay. right? I can understand why people are concerned now, uh, where that's coming from. I haven't in any way, shape or form been able to rigorously look at mm. data on other vaccines. So my default position right now is still to accept those to be... Even with uh, knowing the systemic corruption? Yeah, even though, but, what I, but I'll caveat this. I'll caveat this. So as I say in my talks, I think invariably people need to understand that results of drug company sponsored trials will exaggerate the safety and benefit of yes. those interventions. Yes. That's all I need to say. Yeah. So what does that mean? You know, traditional vaccines in terms of serious adverse events that are published, and by the way, some of the same eminent scientists, by the way, that were behind the reanalysis of this vaccine, mm. they actually um, wrote a, a, an article I think for the Brownstone Institute. And they highlighted the fact that traditional vaccines, serious adverse event rates are about one in a million. Yes. So Nick now, Petrovsky says as well. Yeah. yeah. So I would accept that for the time being yes. because I trust those guys. Yes. These are the same guys that were the ones who were exposing all the harms of this one. Yes. Um, whether it needs further investigation, I think, um, uh, I think there's a good case to look at to see, is this absolutely true? Is it one in a million or is it more than that? That's all I would say. Okay. How do you feel about... <sighs> You, you were recommending the vaccines and you've described here today how you've changed your position on that as you saw more evidence. 
Would it not be the case, though, that of all the harms that we're causing, unfortunately, you are unwittingly one of those people who have perhaps caused harms by recommending the vaccine originally, right? I'm trying to get to whether why you're, you're advocacy now. Is there any sense of like a, a trying to undo what you've done or a guilt that you were pushing it and now you're trying to undo the harm? Like what? How do you balance that in your mind, your positions that you've taken publicly on the vaccine for and against? Yeah, so it's a good question you've asked me on this. So um, for me in medicine, as a doctor, right, we act upon our individual patients. Yeah. And with everything we do, if we, if we make mistakes in medicine, yeah. we are taught that we have to acknowledge those mistakes and we have to speak to those patients and apologize. Patients want to know that when you did something, whether it's putting in a heart stent and there's a complication, mm. that you did your best and you did it in good faith, mm. right? When I went and on Good Morning Britain, to tackle vaccine hesitancy is very interesting. I didn't go with the classic, you should take this vaccine, everyone should take it, and you're yep. an idiot if you know. Yep. I, I, to be honest, I don't know what happened as a result of that because okay. I talked about, and I think the Good Morning Britain producers were probably a bit shocked. Yes. And people can go back and watch that video. Yep. I said, the rational concerns here, look at the history of pharma and the fraud they've committed. Right. Look at the fact that the third most common cause of death after heart disease and cancer are prescribed medications. Mm. But I said, traditional vaccines are the safest. Now, if a patient comes to me that I've seen and says to me, doctor, I, I took this vaccine because of you and I've been harmed, yes. of course I would apologize to that patient. Right. But that hasn't happened. Okay. Well, just your friend that you talked about in your talks, you told her to get the vaccine and she did. Well, she yeah, was. but she actually took a lot of time to even accept when I turned it. Okay. But, you know, she's supporting me now anyway. So she's not in any way, you know, yeah. I mean, she took information from everyone else. But, you know, Gorinda Chad has been really supportive. In fact, she even tweeted out because I said to her, I said, Gorinda, you need to support now that, yeah. you know, what I'm doing. Yeah. And, uh, and she did. She tweeted it out. But, you know, okay. so she, she, she's been fine. But uh, I, I mean, to be honest, I. Um, this is I think, to be honest, most people acted in good faith. Right. Most of the doctors act in good faith. Imagine now this, what, I mean, what do you think should happen? What about all the doctors across the whole of Australia? What, like they, as, as some of the members of the public as a patient, yeah. what do you think those doctors should, I'm, I'm curious, yeah. listen about conversations. What should all those doctors and those GPs across the whole of the Australia right now who encouraged and, uh, people to get vaccinated, probably coerce many of them mm. under that belief. Yes, yes. What do you think they should do? What, what do you think would be good for them to do? Not honestly, it's some, an important some, question. Some level of responsibility because <clears throat> I'm a big believer in taking responsibility as a leader, even if it wasn't directly my fault, I was in charge at the time. So I was in charge of your healthcare, whatever. But I'm hearing this a lot from people contacting me saying the ma main thing that annoys them is not that harms were done. Okay, that's terrible. But they're annoyed that these medical professionals and politicians and policymakers are not willing to take any responsibility. So the doctors are, say, are saying, well, you know, we didn't know. And, and you're the same doctor that coerced me to vaccinate my 14 year old. Now my 14 year old's dead. And I think it was because of the vaccine. And now you're telling me, well, I, yeah. never, com I never coerced you. I never forced yeah. you. I never. Yeah. So there's got to be some level of responsibility. There has to be. I agree. There has to be accountability and responsibility. The other thing as well, and I'm not trying to backtrack from this. It's very interesting. So many people have supported what I'm doing on this have disagreed with me on one point. What? They have said at the very beginning, and this is when I was tackling vaccine hesitancy, yeah. that the overall net effect of the vaccine in those high-risk groups was beneficial. Yes, that's common, especially in the early strains. So, so one could argue when I was there, I probably caused more good than harm. Oh, I see, I see. I'm not, listen, but that isn't the point. Yeah. The point yeah. is, if a patient is injured, any patient is injured, a lot of um, or in any way, in anything I do, right, yeah. as, a, as a doctor, right? Um, 
that's why we had all, we have to have all the information and have informed consent. Because even, for example, I, uh, in my early career, I used to um, do a lot of, you know, I was trained in heart stenting. Mm. And when we, when we uh, do informed consent for the patient, right? Uh, for example, when they come in with a heart attack, we tell them, when I'm taking them to the cath lab and trying to get their heart artery open quickly as possible, I say, you know, get informed consent, there is a 1% chance that what I'm going to do to you is either going to give you a heart attack stroke or kill you. Mm-hmm. Right? And then they sign that form. Mm. So the key thing is about giving the... Because some of the things you can't predict. Yes. And I think that's what we need to be going towards now is where people have better, more complete information and informed consent. And patients will accept, they'll understand that, that you, there's only a certain amount of information you're, you know com- in completeness. You don't know how, it's, how they're necessarily going to react but they just want an honest conversation and that's what we, where we need to go. And yeah. certainly for me, uh, the information that we'd got at the time from all our public, you know, I was, you know, I was um, looking to, you know, our guideline bodies, the BMJ, all that kind of stuff, was this was safe and effective. You know what we do need, unfortunately, for some doctors, and I'm from a medical but, background. But, but, very quickly, but as soon as the information changed, I acted on it. Yes. And I, and I, you know, I went straight out there and helped overturn vaccine mandates for healthcare workers and all that kind of stuff. And so, it wasn't yes. for any redemption. Um, because I've done this throughout my career. Yeah, I, was guy, started, I was a guy. I was a guy in the A and E. In fact, one of the when I was training as a junior doctor, um, uh, I was working in Manchester Royal Infirmary, and I was considered, you know, the 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 one car, um, junior doctor that understand the evidence so well, right? I knew all of the data and all the trials and everything else, which I took as gospel truth. I was probably one of the heaviest prescribers of statins. I would give a statin to the guy in the ER who's coming with a heart attack before he's even gone through his operation. You must, let's start the statin now. I believed it was having an effect immediately. Okay. But as soon as the information, then no, no, I acted on it, right? So this is not, it's not new for me, but that's actually part of being a good doctor. So here's the sad part. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, even those doctors who did act in good faith, if some of them were medically negligent by not getting informed consent or so on, there needs to be a consequence because for the sake of medicine. So let's say there are some doctors but nobody there. was, But there was no real informed consent for anybody, really. Because know, you see, but this data, for example, this that came, for example, now, yeah. if patients come to me, I can actually give them. I didn't have that. We didn't have those figures. Yeah. So the stuff I presented about UK data saying, if you're 70 years old, you've got to vaccinate 2,500 people to prevent one person being hospitalized. Yeah. That I can at least use that information now with patients. We didn't have that information then. Where we've got an absolute benefit and say, well, actually, your harm rate is probably at least 1 in 100. What do you think? Most of the patients say no, thank but you. Th- but we weren't doing that. So we have, we an, we have an Australian immunization handbook here, which details, but you need to follow these and get informed consent. Uh, and we, our GPs, so many cases, were not doing that. Yeah. Even if they were acting with the best of intentions to yeah. save the community and so on, yeah. some of them need to be sued because th- we cannot have a medical system where the doctors can just throw out established principles, even if they didn't have the data, and nothing happens. Yeah. And that's sad. No, I, these I doctors, understand that. I understand that. And I think all these different legal routes ultimately are part of the solution to transforming the system so this never happens again. Mm. Absolutely. Especially now, if doctors and politicians are pushing it now in the face of data, that's negligent. That's deadly. Uh, last question before we finish. Serious questions. Is I'd like to try and steel man the other side of your argument because you've got a lot of critics, which is normal because you're pioneering. Uh, can you try and steel man their argument against you? What, what data would it take for you to come out and change your mind again and say, oh, I was wrong, the vaccines are great. I'd like to know what would convince you of the mRNA vaccine. <laughs> I, at the moment, I can't see any argument, counter-argument. Because the data is strong that they're d- the, bad. Listen, there's always uncertainty in every bit of medical research, yeah. right? That's why in medical journals, and this is also, so, I'm glad you've asked this question because it's a sociocultural phenomenon we need to also address. 
in every medical journal article, you have to put everything I've you know submitted. Yes. You have to put limitations. Yes. Right. Because nothing is absolute truth. It's very yes. rare. To, there are greater truths. Yes. But nothing is really. It's very. It's unusual to get an absolute one hundred percent truth. Right. Yes. It's like. We know smoking causes lung cancer, but not every smoker is going to get lung cancer. Right. Right? It's all about risks, etc. Yeah. It's art of probabilities. Yeah. Um, so it's easy for someone to take every single study that I'm referencing yes. and find some flaw in it. It's what they do. That's what they do. And that's what, by the way, that's what Big Tobacco did for many years to avoid any... Uh, it's very well known. They exploited uncertainties in the scientific method right. to actually counter. That was a propaganda. They amplify it. Right. And so one example, for example, you know, you've heard this story about um, it was headlines around the world that people took as truth. 20 million lives saved from COVID vaccines. That's right. Yes. It was a modeling study. Uh, it was a it was an extrapolation. It was science fiction. It was as far as away from the truth as you can get when it comes to medical evidence. You've got much stronger evidence, double binder, randomized control trial evidence showing the opposite. And that's not getting the publicity. Right. Mm. So it's where is all the where's the propaganda? Where's the who's fueling this stuff, who's amplifying it, who's misleading th- people, use of the media, et cetera, headlines, people look at the headlines, nothing else, and then that influences their belief systems. So um, I think that there's always room for uncertainty, but what I have to do is, and everyone has to do is, look, what is the over, where is this, what, what, where is the strength of the evidence? Where, where is it pointing? And the strength of the evidence is pointing very much, very clearly in the direction of significant harms, Certainly no benefit now. And then we have to understand what's behind it all. So I'm trying to look at the whole system, right? And I've been on this for many, many years. So I'm very happy to debate with people on this. But I'm not, no person has really, there's a few blogs and a few smears here and there. And I look at it and I just say, this is, and also there's something else as well I've got to be wary of. I'm very happy to debate with the right people in the right forum. But some of these people want to get into a debate deliberately to pull me down. And it was, um... Uh, George Bernard Shaw that said, never wrestle with a pig. Hmm. You both get dirty and the pig likes it. Mm. I have to intuitively and also figure out and calculate who are the people worth actually debating with who are just there for nefarious intentions, right? Um, And who are the people that are, you know, who I genuinely think are acting from a place of honesty and integrity and have legitimate questions and we'll debate that. But, you know, yeah. It, even it, if that's true, though, even if they're a pig wanting to nefarious intentions, if you have the truth on this matter, yeah. then you, there's nothing to be afraid of. Right? I'm not, not afraid of anything. Yeah, okay. We we got here today. I didn't. I, you didn't. I, I didn't ask you to give me some preparation no, of the questions. I didn't know what was coming. Yeah. Right. And I'm happy to do that with anybody. And always, all of my interviews that I do went on Sky News Australia, wherever in the BBC. I have. I never asked anyone. I said, you know, if we talk, I will not talk about a topic. If I don't know an answer, I will say I don't know. Yes. But I'm very happy to be um, questioned by anyone in, in any situation, in any, in any forum. And no one has, has done that so far. You know, they're just ignoring it. They're just ignoring the data. You know, I know this also because I asked Joseph Freeman, who was a lead author on this reanalysis of vaccine, and he, their data was presented to the FDA, this paper. Mm-hmm. And I said, Joseph, what's going on? What did they say? He yeah. said he was kind of laughing in a kind of straight. He said, I see They're not rebutting it. They're just ignoring it. It's just, it's just wow. bizarre. Okay. It's bizarre. So in your view, the, the evidence, the weight of evidence, is it 50-50 or is it 80-20? What with these things you're... you're, you're... The weight of evidence in terms of the serious harms is, is I mean, it's... Um, let's put it this way. In all my career, I'll tell you what, I'll put it this way. I was considered one of the lead campaigners in the UK and probably the world in highlighting the harms of excess sugar and bringing sugar yes. reduction policies. Yes. 
the evidence of harm from these vaccines in terms of the quality of the evidence um, is far superior. You know, we know sugar's bad. This is far worse. Let's put it that way. Okay. So if I'm wrong about this, <laughs> then that means sugar is good for you. <laughs> Go home, just start. I was wrong about sugar. It's Twinkies. good for the heart. No, honestly, it's good for the heart. Gorge on sugar. If I'm wrong about this, then I'm definitely wrong about sugar. People can draw their own conclusions. So the only way to the only way for you to be wrong and to steel man this argument is to turn the world <laughs> upside down, to turn science upside down. Well, it just doesn't. Yeah, no, okay, it so doesn't, this is doesn't ridiculous. Fit. It doesn't fit. Right. But listen, I, there may be new evidence on something new that we don't know about. But I find it very. It's yeah. I think it's highly, highly improbable. What should we do now? Finally, what should governments do? What should we as a population do? Should you've said stop the rollout of the vax? Is that something we should do? I didn't just say stop the rollout of the vax. I said it should never have been approved for a single human in the first place. Your TGA, your regulator, the regulator in the, in the US and UK, they get most of their money from pharma and most people didn't even know this. This is a huge conflict of interest. So we have to change the system to get, it's, better, it's about better transparency, better information, etc. But certainly in relation to this, there needs to be a moratorium. There needs to be, oh my God. Right. What have we done? Yeah. This is horrific. Yes. It is horrific. I'm yes. sorry. Yeah. People are dying, mm. left, right, and center. We heard yesterday um, from the mother of this 21-year-old girl. I mean, it was just horrific who died after having the Moderna vaccine. It was attributed to that. It was awful. This mm. One person's death is one death too many from this, mm -hmm. right? So it needs to stop. We need to say, this is why we got it wrong, and this is what we need to do moving forward. And I'd written about this saying, building up to this situation was all in some ways predictable, right? Murphy's Law, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. It was all, we were, all the structural drivers of this were um, already well in place. What does that mean? Increasing both visible and invisible unchecked power by big pharma over decades, who often in their pursuit for profit behave as legal entities like psychopaths. And that's what we're dealing with now, unfortunately. And maybe reduce uh, TGA here in Australia, maybe 96% of their funding coming from big pharma is a bit too high. Maybe 90% would be okay. 96%? Zero. Zero. Get none. Zero. None. Absolutely. Dr. Seema Holcher, thank you for coming to Australia. I don't know why it takes someone from outside to come in and speak sense to us, but thank you for that. Uh, thank you all for watching this um, interview. We exist here for free because of a few supporters uh, at discernible.locals.com. Go there to support us. And of course, make sure you check out the first Do No Farm film, and the link is in the description below. Uh, where are you off to next? You're off to the rest of the country. Yeah, mate. Um, there was four talks in a row yesterday. Uh, tomorrow I go to Adelaide, then Brisbane. There's two uh, public events, one doctor's event. They all sold out now, which is excellent. And then I go to Perth. Yep. Um, I think one thing also to mention is that, you know, I'm not being paid for any of this in terms of my, you know, all these lectures and talks. I'm, I'm driven by my advocacy oh. work. Okay, because some uh, people are saying you're being paid 30 grand a talk. No, I was not like, being, no, not being paid a penny. I've been Listen, the, mate, yeah. if you look at my tax return from, from last year, and in fact, I'm probably going to do it with a podcast with a doctor because I don't want obviously, you don't want to publicize sure, that stuff, but he, sure. I will show him that evidence. Sure. Um, people will be probably pretty surprised. I suspect I'm one of the lowest earning cardiologists in the world from my total tax returns. And uh, that's because I spent so much of my time in this advocacy work. Mm -hmm. So I'm not driven by money. I mean, to me, that doesn't give me value. It's about doing something meaningful. But I'm not seeing patients right now, so I'm actually losing money by doing yeah. this stuff. But it's meaningful work. And actually, I've come here to help. And obviously, what people are paying tickets for, all of those extra proceeds are going to AMPS, you know, the yes. Association uh, Medical Professionals Society. Yes. An alternative to the AMA for the doctors. Yeah, and these yeah. are doctors and nurses that lost their jobs because they didn't have the vaccine. So I'm here really to support them. Yeah. They're doing great work. They're real heroes. Uh, they will go down the right side of history. 
and anything I can do to support them, and that's why I'm here, and to get the message out is, you know, for me a success. So that's, uh, that's where we're at, and uh, we're getting some mainstream coverage, which is good, and I think, uh, you know, there's some politicians that came to my talk in Parliament, and some of them, I think, certainly uh, were new to this and have been turned. So I'm hopeful, you know. We're, we're, we're taking things in the right direction in Australia. Thank you for coming out. Send some more people our way into Australia. I will do, mate. Thank you, Sim. All right. Thanks a lot. Whoa!